Chapter Nineteen of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen: The Legend of the Arabian Astrologer. In old times, many hundred years ago, there was a Moorish king named Aben Habus who reigned over the kingdom of Granada. He was a retired conqueror that is to say, one who, having in his more youthful days led a life of constant foray and depredation, now that he was grown old and superannuated, languished for repose, and desired nothing more than to live at peace with all the world, to husband his laurels, and to enjoy in quiet the possessions he had wrested from his neighbors. It so happened, however, that this most reasonable and pacific old monarch had young rivals to deal with, princes full of his early passion for fame and fighting, and who had some scores to settle which he had run up with their fathers. He had also some turbulent and discontented districts of his own territories among the Alparaja mountains, which, during the days of his vigor, he had treated with a high hand and which, now that he languished for repose, were prone to rise in rebellion and to threaten to march to Granada and drive him from his throne. To make the matter worse, as Granada is surrounded by wild and craggy mountains which hide the approach of an enemy, the unfortunate Aben Habus was kept in a constant state of vigilance and alarm, not knowing in what quarter hostilities might break out. It was in vain that he built watch-towers on the mountains, and stationed guards at every pass, with orders to make fires by night and smoke by day on the approach of an enemy. His alert foes would baffle every precaution, and come breaking out of some unthought-of defile, ravage his lands beneath his very nose, and then make off with prisoners and booty to the mountains was ever peaceable and retired conqueror in a more uncomfortable predicament. While the pacific Aben Habus was harassed by these perplexities and molestations, an ancient Arabian physician arrived at his court. His gray beard descended to his girdle, and he had every mark of extreme age, yet he had travelled almost the whole way from Egypt on foot, with no other aid than a staff marked with hieroglyphics. His fame had preceded him. His name was Ibrahim Ibn Abu Ayyub. He was said to have lived ever since the days of Mohammed, and to be the son of Abu Ayyub, the last of the companions of the Prophet. He had, when a child, followed the conquering army of Amru into Egypt, where he had remained many years studying the dark sciences, and particularly magic, among the Egyptian priests. It was, moreover, said that he had found out the secret of prolonging life, by means of which he had arrived to the great age of upwards of two centuries, though, as he did not discover the secret until well stricken in years, he could only perpetuate his gray hairs and wrinkles. This wonderful old man was very honorably entertained by the king, who, like most superannuated monarchs, began to take physicians into great favor. 
He would have assigned him an apartment in his palace, but the astrologer preferred a cave in the side of the hill which rises above the city of Granada, being the same on which the Alhambra has since been built. He caused the cave to be enlarged so as to form a spacious and lofty hall with a circular hole at the top, through which, as through a well, he could see the heavens and behold the stars even at midday. The wall of this hall were covered with Egyptian hieroglyphics, with cabalistic symbols, and with the figures of the stars in their signs. This hall he furnished with many implements, fabricated under his direction by cunning artificers of Granada, but the occult properties of which were only known to himself. In a little while the sage Ibrahim became the bosom counsellor of the king, to whom he applied for advice in every emergency. Aben Habuz was once inveighing against the injustice of his neighbors, and bewailing the restless vigilance he had to observe to guard himself against their invasions. When he had finished, the astrologer remained silent for a moment, and then replied, Know, O king, that when I was in Egypt I beheld a great marvel devised by a pagan priestess of old. On a mountain above the city of Borsa, and overlooking the great valley of the Nile, was a figure of a ram, and above it a figure of a cock, both of molten brass and turning upon a pivot. Whenever the country was threatened with invasion, the ram would turn in the direction of the enemy, and the cock would crow. Upon this the inhabitants of the city knew of the danger, and of the quarter from which it was approaching, and could take timely notice to guard against it. "'God is great!' exclaimed the pacific Aben Habuz. "'What a treasure would be such a ram to keep an eye upon these mountains around me, and then such a cock to crow in time of danger! Allah Akbar! How securely I might sleep in my palace with such sentinels on the top!' listen o king continued the astrologer gravely when the victorious amru god's peace be upon him conquered the city of borsa this talisman was destroyed but i was present and examined it and studied its secret and mystery and can make one of like and even of greater virtues o wise son of abu ayyub cried aben habuz Better were such a talisman than all the watch-towers on the hills, and sentinels upon the borders. Give me such a safeguard, and the riches of my treasury are at thy command." The astrologer immediately set to work to gratify the wishes of the monarch. Shutting himself up in his astrological hall, and exerting the necromantic arts he had learned in Egypt, he summoned to his assistance the spirits and demons of the Nile. By his command they transported to his presence a mummy from a sepulchral chamber in the centre of one of the pyramids. It was the mummy of the priest who had aided by magic art in rearing that stupendous pile. The astrologer opened the outer cases of the mummy, and unfolded its many wrappers. On the breast of the corpse was a book written in Chaldaic characters. He seized it with trembling hand, then, returning the mummy to its case, 
ordered the demons to transport it again to its dark and silent sepulchre in the pyramid, there to await the final day of resurrection and judgment. This book, say the traditions, was the book of knowledge given by God to Adam after his fall. It had been handed down from generation to generation to King Solomon the Wise, and by the aid of the wonderful secrets in magic and art revealed in it, he had built the temple in Jerusalem. How it had come into the possession of the builder of the pyramids, he only knows who knows all things. Instructed by this mystic volume, and aided by the genie which it subjected to his command, the astrologer soon erected a great tower upon the top of the palace of Aben Habus, which stood on the brow of the hill of the Albison. The tower was built of stones brought from Egypt, and taken, it is said, from one of the pyramids. In the upper part of the tower was a circular hall, with windows looking toward every point of the compass, and before each window was a table, on which was arranged, as on a chessboard, a mimic army of horse and foot, with the effigy of the potentate that ruled in that direction, all carved of wood. To each of these tables there was a small lance, no bigger than a bodkin, on which were engraved certain mysterious Chaldaic characters. This hall was kept constantly closed by a gate of brass with a great lock of steel, the key of which was in possession of the king. On the top of the tower was a bronze figure of a Moorish horseman fixed on a pivot, with a shield on one arm and his lance elevated perpendicularly. The face of this horseman was towards the city, as if keeping guard over it. But if any foe were at hand, the figure would turn in that direction, and would level the lance as if for action. When this talisman was finished, Aben Habus was all impatient to try its virtues, and longed as ardently for an invasion as he had ever sighed after repose. His desire was soon gratified. Tidings were brought early one morning, by the sentinel appointed to watch the tower, that the face of the brazen horseman was turned towards the mountains of Elvira, and that his lance pointed directly against the pass of Lope. Let the drums and trumpets sound to arms, and all Granada be put on the alert, said Aben Habus. O king, said the astrologer, let not your city be disquieted, nor your warriors called to arms. We need no aid of force to deliver you from your enemies. Dismiss your attendants, and let us proceed alone to the secret hall of the tower." The ancient Aben Habus mounted the staircase of the tower, leaning on the arm of the still more ancient Ibrahim ibn Abu Ayyub. They unlocked the brazen door and entered. The window that looked towards the pass of Lope was open. In this direction, said the astrologer, lies the danger. Approach, O king, and behold the mystery of the table. King Aben Habus approached the seeming chessboard on which were arranged the small wooden effigies, when, lo, they were all in motion. The horses pranced and curveted, 
the warriors brandished their weapons, and there was a faint sound of drums and trumpets, and a clang of arms and neighing of steeds, but all no louder nor more distinct than the hum of the bee or summer-fly in the drowsy ear of him who lies at noontide in the shade. Behold, O king, said the astrologer, a proof that thy enemies are even now in the field. They must be advancing through yonder mountains by the pass of Lope. Would you produce a panic and confusion amongst them, and cause them to abandon their enterprise and retreat without loss of life, strike these effigies with the butt-end of this magic lance, but would you cause bloody feud and carnage among them, strike with the point. A livid streak passed across the countenance of the Pacific Aben Habus. He seized the mimic lance with trembling eagerness and tottered towards the table. His gray beard wagged with chuckling exultation. "'Son of Abu Ayyub!' exclaimed he. "'I think we will have a little blood.' So saying, he thrust the magic lance into some of the pygmy effigies, and belabored others with the butt-end, upon which the former fell, as dead, upon the board, and the rest, turning upon each other, began pell-mell a chance medley fight. It was with difficulty the astrologer could stay the hand of the most pacific of monarchs, and prevent him from absolutely exterminating his foes. At length he prevailed upon him to leave the tower, and to send out scouts to the mountains by the pass of Lope. They returned with the intelligence that a Christian army had advanced through the heart of the Sierra, almost within sight of Granada, when a dissension having broken out among them, they had turned their weapons against each other, and after much slaughter had retreated over the border. Aben Habus was transported with joy on thus proving the efficacy of the talisman. At length, said he, I shall lead a life of tranquillity, and have all my enemies in my power. O wise son of Abu Ayyub, what can I bestow on thee in reward for such a blessing? The wants of an old man and a philosopher, O king, are few and simple. Grant me but the means of fitting up my cave as a suitable hermitage, and I am content. How noble is the moderation of the truly wise! exclaimed Aben Habus, secretly pleased at the cheapness of the recompense. He summoned his treasurer, and bade him dispense whatever sums might be required by Ibrahim to complete and furnish his hermitage. The astrologer now gave orders to have various chambers hewn out of the solid rock, so as to form ranges of apartments connected with his astrological hall. These he caused to be furnished with luxurious ottomans and divans, and the walls to be hung with the richest silks of Damascus. I am an old man, said he, and can no longer rest my bones on stone couches, and these damp walls require covering. He also had baths constructed and provided with all kinds of perfumery and aromatic oils, for a bath, said he, is necessary to counteract the rigidity of age 
and to restore freshness and suppleness to the frame withered by study. He caused the apartments to be hung with innumerable silver and crystal lamps, which he filled with fragrant oil prepared according to a receipt discovered by him in the tombs of Egypt. This oil was perpetual in its nature, and diffused a soft radiance like the tempered light of day. The light of the sun, said he, is too garish and violent for the eyes of an old man, and the light of the lamp is more congenial to the studies of a philosopher. The treasurer of King Aben Habuz groaned at the sums daily demanded to fit up this hermitage, and he carried his complaints to the king. The royal word, however, was given. Aben Habuz shrugged his shoulders. We must have patience, said he. This old man has taken his idea of a philosophic retreat from the interior of the pyramids and the vast ruins of Egypt. But all things have an end, and so will the furnishing of his cavern. The king was in the right. The hermitage was at length complete, and formed a sumptuous subterranean palace. I am now content, said Ibrahim ibn Abu Ayyub to the treasurer. I will shut myself up in my cell, and devote my time to study. I desire nothing more, nothing except a trifling solace to amuse me at the intervals of mental labor. O oh, wise Ibrahim, ask what thou wilt, I am bound to furnish all that is necessary for thy solitude. I would fain have then a, a few dancing women, said the philosopher. Dancing women, echoed the treasurer with surprise. Dancing women, replied the sage gravely, a, a few will suffice, for I am an old man and a philosopher of simple habits and easily satisfied. Let them, however, be young and fair to look upon, for the sight of youth and beauty is refreshing to old age. While the philosophic Ibrahim ibn Ayyub passed his time thus sagely in his hermitage, the pacific Aben Habus carried on furious campaigns in effigy in his tower. It was a glorious thing for an old man like himself, of quiet habits, to have war made easy, and to be enabled to amuse himself in his chamber by brushing away whole armies like so many swarms of flies. For a time he rioted in the indulgence of his humours, and even taunted and insulted his neighbours to induce them to make incursions. But by degrees they grew wary from repeated disasters, until no one ventured to invade his territories. For many months the bronze horseman remained on the peace establishment with his lance elevated in the air, and the worthy old monarch began to repine at the want of his accustomed sport, and to grow peevish at his monotonous tranquillity. At length, one day, the talismanic horseman veered suddenly round, and, lowering his lance, made a dead point towards the mountains of Guadi. Aben Habus hastened to his tower, but the magic table in that direction remained quiet, not a single warrior was in motion. 
Perplexed at the circumstance, he sent forth a troop of horse to scour the mountains and reconnoitre. They returned after three days' absence. Rodovan, the captain of the troop, addressed the king. "'We have searched every mountain pass,' said he, "'but not a helm or spear was stirring. All that we have found in the course of our foray was a Christian damsel of surpassing beauty sleeping at noontide beside a fountain, whom we have brought away captive. A damsel of surpassing beauty! exclaimed Aben Habus, his eyes gleaming with animation. Let her be conducted into my presence. Pardon me, O king, replied Rodovan, but our warfare at present is scanty and yields but little harvest. I had hoped this chance gleaning would have been allowed for my services. Chance gleaning, cried Abun Habus. What, a damsel of surpassing beauty? By the head of my father, it is the choice fruits of warfare only to be garnered up into the royal keeping. Let the damsel be brought hither instantly. The beautiful damsel was accordingly conducted into his presence. She was arrayed in the Gothic style, with all the luxury of ornament that had prevailed among the Gothic Spaniards at the time of the Arabian conquest. Pearls of dazzling whiteness were entwined with her raven tresses, and jewels sparkled on her forehead, rivaling the lustre of her eyes. Around her neck was a golden chain to which was suspended a silver lyre which hung by her side. The flashes of her dark, refulgent eye were like sparks of fire on the withered yet combustible breast of Aben Habuz, and set it in a flame. The swimming voluptuousness of her gait made his senses reel. Fairest of women, cried he with rapture, who and what art thou? the daughter of one of the gothic princes who lately ruled over this land the armies of my father have been destroyed as if by magic among these mountains he has been driven into exile and his daughter is a slave be comforted beautiful princess thou art no longer a slave but a sovereign turn thine eyes graciously upon abun habuz and reign over him and his dominions. Beware, O king, whispered Ibrahim ibn Abu Ayyub, this may be some spirit conjured up by the magicians of the Goths, and sent for thy undoing. Or it may be one of those northern sorceresses who assume the most seducing forms to beguile the unwary. Methinks I read witchcraft in her eye, and sorcery in every movement. Let my sovereign beware, this must be the enemy pointed out by the talisman. Son of Abu Ayyub, replied the king, you are a wise man, and a conjurer, I grant, but you are little versed in the ways of woman. In the knowledge of the sex I will yield to no man. No, not to the wise Solomon himself, notwithstanding the number of his wives and his concubines. As to this damsel, I see much comfort in her for my old days, 
even such comfort as David, the father of Solomon, found in the society of Abishag the Shunammite. Hearken, O king, rejoined the astrologer, suddenly changing his tone, I have given thee many triumphs over thy enemies, and by means of my talisman, yet thou hast never given me share of the spoils. Grant me this one stray captive to solace me in my retirement, and I am content." What? cried Aben Habus. More women? Hast thou not already dancing women to solace thee? What more wouldst thou desire? Dancing women have I, it is true, but I have none that sing, and music is a balm to old age. This captive, I perceive, beareth a silver lyre, and must be skilled in minstrelsy. Give her to me, I pray thee, to soothe my senses after the toil of study." The ire of the pacific monarch was kindled, and he loaded the philosopher with reproaches. The latter retired indignantly to his hermitage, but ere he departed he again warned the monarch to beware of his beautiful captive. Where, in fact, is the old man in love that will listen to counsel? Aben Habus had felt the full power of the witchery of the eye and the sorcery of movement, and the more he gazed, the more he was enamoured. He resigned himself to the full sway of his passions. His only study was how to render himself amiable in the eyes of the Gothic beauty. He had not youth, it is true, to recommend him, but then he had riches, and when a lover is no longer young, he becomes generous. The Zacatin of Granada was ransacked for the most precious merchandise of the East. Silks, jewels, precious gems, and exquisite perfumes, all that Asia and Africa yielded of rich and rare, were lavished upon the princess. She received all as her due, and regarded them with the indifference of one accustomed to magnificence. All kinds of spectacles and festivities were devised for her entertainment, minstrelsy, dancing, tournaments, bullfights. Granada, for a time, was a scene of perpetual pageant. The Gothic princess seemed to take a delight in causing expense, as if she sought to drain the treasures of the monarch. There were no bounds to her caprice or to the extravagance of her ideas. Yet notwithstanding all this munificence, the venerable Aben Habus could not flatter himself that he had made any impression on her heart. She never frowned on him, it is true, but she had a singular way of baffling his tender advances. Whenever he began to plead his passion, she struck her silver lyre. There was a mystic charm in the sound. On hearing of it, an irresistible drowsiness seized upon the superannuated lover. He fell asleep, and only woke when the temporary fumes of passion had evaporated. Still the dream of love had a bewitching power over his senses, so he continued to dream on, while all Granada scoffed at his infatuation and groaned at the treasures lavished for a song.
At length a danger burst over the head of Aben Habuz, against which his talisman yielded him no warning. A rebellion broke out in the very heart of his capital, headed by the bold Rodovan. Aben Habuz was for a time besieged in his palace, and it was not without the greatest difficulty that he repelled his assailants and quelled the insurrection. He now felt himself compelled once more to resort to the assistance of the astrologer. He found him still shut up in his hermitage, chewing the cud of resentment. O oh, wise son of Abu Ayyub, said he, what thou hast foretold has in some sort come to pass. This Gothic princess has brought trouble and danger upon me. Is the king then disposed to put her away from him? said the astrologer with animation. Sooner would I part with my kingdom, replied Aben Habus. What, then, is the need of disturbing me in my philosophical retirement?" said the astrologer peevishly. "'Be not angry, O sagest of philosophers! I would fain have one more exertion of thy magic art. Devise some means by which I may be secure from internal treason as well as outward war, some safe retreat where I may take refuge and be at peace." The astrologer ruminated for a moment, and a subtle gleam shone from his eye under his busy eyebrows. "'Thou hast heard, no doubt, O king,' said he, "'of the palace and garden of Iram, whereof mention is made in that chapter of the Koran entitled The Dawn of Day.' "'I have heard of that garden. Marvellous things are related of it by the pilgrims who visit Mecca, but I have thought them wild fables, such as those are prone to tell who visit remote regions. Listen, O king, and thou shalt know the mystery of that garden. In my younger days I was in Arabia the happy, tending my father's camels. One of them strayed away from the rest and was lost. I searched for it for several days about the deserts of Aden, until wearied and faint I laid myself down and slept under a palm-tree by the side of a scanty well. When I awoke I found myself at the gate of a city. I entered and beheld noble streets and squares and market-places, but all were silent and without an inhabitant. I wandered on until I came to a sumptuous palace with a garden adorned with fountains and fish-ponds, and groves and flowers, and orchards laden with delicious fruit, but still no one was to be seen. Upon which, appalled at this loneliness, I hastened to depart, and after issuing forth at the gate of the city I turned to look upon the place. but. It was no longer to be seen, nothing but the silent desert extended before my eyes. In the neighborhood I met with an aged dervish, learned in the traditions and secrets of the land, and related to him what had befallen me. This, said he, is the far-famed Garden of Iram, one of the wonders of the desert. 
it only appears at times to some wanderer like thyself, gladdening him with the sight of towers and palaces, and garden walls overhung with richly laden fruit trees, and then vanishes, leaving nothing but a lonely desert. And this is the story of it. In old times, when this country was inhabited by the Adils, King Shedad, the son of Ad, the great-grandson of Noah, founded here a splendid city. When it was finished, and he saw its grandeur, his heart was puffed up with pride and arrogance, and he determined to build a royal palace with gardens that should rival all that was related in the Koran of the celestial paradise. But the curse of heaven fell upon him for his presumption. He and his subjects were swept from the earth, and his splendid city, and palace, and garden, were laid under a perpetual spell that hides them from the human sight, excepting that they are seen at intervals, by way of keeping his sin in perpetual remembrance. This story, O King, and the wonders I have seen, ever dwell in my mind, and in after years, when I had been in Egypt and made myself master of all kinds of magic spells, I determined to return and visit the Garden of Irem. I did so, and found it revealed to my instructed sight. I took possession of the palace of Shaddad, and passed several days in his mock paradise. The genie who watched over the place were obedient to my magic power, and revealed to me the spells by which the whole garden had been, as it were, conjured into existence, and by which it was rendered invisible. Such spells, O king, are within the scope of my art. What sayest thou? Wouldst thou have a palace and garden like those of Iram, filled with all manner of delights, but hidden from the eyes of mortals? O oh, wise son of Abu Ayyub, exclaimed Aben Habus, trembling with eagerness, contrive me such a paradise, and ask any reward, even to the half of my kingdom. Alas, replied the other, thou knowest I am an old man, and a philosopher, and easily satisfied. All the reward I ask is the first beast of burden, with its load that shall enter the magic portal of the palace. The monarch gladly agreed to so moderate a stipulation, and the astrologer began his work. On the summit of the hill, immediately above his subterranean hermitage, he caused a great gateway or barbican to be erected, opening through the centre of a strong tower. There was an outer vestibule, or porch, with a lofty arch, and within it a portal, secured by massive gates. On the keystone of the portal, the astrologer, with his own hand, wrought the figure of a huge key, and on the keystone of the outer arch of the vestibule, which was loftier than that of the portal, he carved a gigantic hand. These were potent talismans, over which he repeated many sentences in an unknown tongue. When this gateway was finished, he shut himself up for two days in his astrological hall, engaged in secret incantations. 
on the third he ascended the hill and passed the whole day on its summit at a late hour of the night he came down and presented himself before aben habus at length o king said he my labor is accomplished on the summit of the hill stands one of the most delectable palaces that ever the head of man devised or the heart of man desired it contains sumptuous halls and galleries delicious gardens cool fountains and fragrant baths in a word the whole mountain is converted into a paradise like the garden of iram it is protected by a mighty charm which hides it from the view and search of mortals, excepting such as possess the secret of its talismans. Enough! cried Aben Habus joyfully. Tomorrow morning, bright and early, we will ascend and take possession. The happy monarch scarcely slept that night. Scarcely had the rays of the sun begun to play about the snowy summit of the Sierra Nevada when he mounted his steed and accompanied only by a few chosen attendants ascended a steep and narrow road leading up the hill beside him on a white palfrey rode the gothic princess her dress sparkling with jewels while round her neck was suspended her silver lyre the astrologer walked on the other side of the king assisting his steps with his hieroglyphic staff for he never mounted steed of any kind. Aben Habus looked to see the towers of the promised palace brightening above him, and the embowered terraces of its gardens stretching along the heights, but as yet nothing of the kind was to be descried. That is the mystery and safeguard of the place, said the astrologer. Nothing can be discerned until you have passed the spellbound gateway and been put in possession of the place. As they approached the gateway, the astrologer paused and pointed out to the king the mystic hand and key carved upon the portal and the arch. These, said he, are the talismans which guard the entrance to this paradise. Until yonder hand shall reach down and seize that key, neither mortal power nor magic artifice can prevail against the lord of this mountain. While Aben Habus was gazing with open mouth and silent wonder at these mystic talismans, the palfrey of the princess proceeded on, and bore her in at the portal to the very centre of the barbican. Behold! cried the astrologer, my promised reward, the first animal with its burden that should enter the magic gateway. Aben Habus smiled at what he considered a pleasantry of the ancient man, but when he found him to be in earnest, his gray beard trembled with indignation. Son of Abu Ayyub, said he sternly, what equivocation is this? Thou knowest the meaning of my promise, the first beast of burden with its load that should enter this portal. Take the strongest mule in my stables, load it with the most precious things of my treasury, and it is thine, but dare not to raise thy thoughts to her who is the delight of my heart. What need I of wealth? cried the astrologer scornfully. Have I not the book of knowledge of Solomon the wise, 
and through it the command of the secret treasures of the earth ? The princess is mine by right, thy royal word is pledged, I claim her as my own." The princess sat upon her palfrey in the pride of youth and beauty, and a light smile of scorn curled her rosy lip at this dispute between two greybeards for her charms. The wrath of the monarch got the better of his discretion. "'Base son of the desert!' cried he. "'Thou mayest be master of many arts, but know me for thy master, and presume not to juggle with thy king.' "'My master!' echoed the astrologer. "'My king!' the monarch of a molehill, to claim sway over him who possesses the talismans of Solomon. Farewell, Aben Habus, reign over thy petty kingdom, and revel in thy paradise of fools. For me I will laugh at thee in my philosophic retirement. So saying, he seized the bridle of the palfrey, smote the earth with his staff, and sank with the Gothic princes through the centre of the barbican. The earth closed over them, and no trace remained of the opening by which they had descended. Aben Habus was struck dumb for a time with astonishment. Recovering himself, he ordered a thousand workmen to dig with pickaxe and spade into the ground where the astrologer had disappeared. They digged and digged, but in vain. The flinty bosom of the hill resisted their implements, or, if they did penetrate a little way, the earth filled in again as fast as they threw it out. Aben Habus sought the mouth of the cavern at the foot of the hill, leading to the subterranean palace of the astrologer, but it was nowhere to be found. Where once had been an entrance was now a solid surface of primeval rock. With the disappearance of Ibrahim ibn Abu Ayyub ceased the benefit of his talismans. The bronze horseman remained fixed with his face turned toward the hill, and his spear pointed to the spot where the astrologer had descended, as if there still lurked the deadliest foe of Aben Habus. From time to time the sound of music and the tones of a female voice could be faintly heard from the bosom of the hill, and a peasant one day brought word to the king that in the preceding night he had found a fissure in the rock, by which he had crept in until he looked down into a subterranean hall in which sat the astrologer on a magnificent divan, slumbering and nodding to the silver lyre of the princess, which seemed to hold a magic sway over his senses. Aben Habus sought for the fissure in the rock, but it was again closed. He renewed the attempt to unearth his rival, but all in vain. The spell of the hand and key was too potent to be counteracted by human power. As to the summit of the mountain, the site of the promised palace and garden, it remained a naked waste. Either the boasted Elysium was hidden from sight by enchantment, or was a mere fable of the astrologer. The world charitably supposed the latter, and some used to call the place the king's folly, while others named it the fool's paradise. 
To add to the chagrin of Aben Habuz, the neighbours, whom he had defied, and taunted, and cut up at his leisure, while master of the talismanic horsemen, finding him no longer protected by magic spell, made inroads into his territories from all sides, and the remainder of the life of the most pacific of monarchs was a tissue of turmoils. At length Aben Habuz died and was buried. Ages have since rolled away. The Alhambra has been built on the eventful mountain, and in some measure realizes the fabled delights of the Garden of Iram. The spellbound gateway still exists, protected, no doubt, by the mystic hand and key, and now forms the gate of justice, the grand entrance to the fortress. Under that gateway, it is said, the old astrologer remains in his subterranean hall, nodding on his divan, lulled by the silver lyre of the princess. The old invalid sentinels, who mount guard at the gate, hear the strains occasionally in the summer nights, and, yielding to their soporific power, doze quietly at their posts. Nay, so drowsy an influence pervades the place that even those who watch by day may generally be seen nodding on the stone benches of the barbican, or sleeping under the neighboring trees, so that it is, in fact, the drowsiest military posts in all Christendom. All this, say the legends, will endure. From age to age the princess will remain captive to the astrologer, and the astrologer bound up in magic slumber by the princess, until the last day, unless the mystic hand shall grasp the fated key and dispel the whole charm of this enchanted mountain. End of chapter 19